We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Today is January, Saturday, or Saturday, January the 2nd, 2016, the first show of the year for the Truth Perspective, and welcome back, everybody. In the studio with me today, we have SOT Editor's Shane Lachance. Hello, everybody. We have William. Good afternoon. Corey. Happy New Year's, everybody. Meg. Hello. And Harrison. So, the theme for today's show is Nations of Entropy, Nations of Creativity. Uh, just uh, one second. Could we have Harrison on? We should. Harrison, you there? Just bear with us, folks. Harrison, you with us? Oh, yeah. Here I am. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Okay. Very good. Now, we had you on headphones, so that was our... Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, to start off the new year, we thought we'd talk about nations of entropy and nations of creativity. While it may not be quite as black and white as the title of today's show suggests, there are different spheres of behavior among many governments that do point towards a particular direction that these countries are stri- striving towards. For instance... What does sound economic policy look like among countries that are seeking to be constructive? And how is force applied when a country is aligned with the forces of destruction? And what are the things that the leaders of these countries say and do that suggest sincerity or duplicity? The contrasts we can see are stark, but seem lost on all too many of the propagandized people of the world. But... With the plethora of objective information being revealed today about geopolitical events, we can certainly make some very important distinctions that point to some clear truths. Now, today's show was kind of inspired in part by a a new article, a pretty recent one by William Ingdahl that we carried on SOT. It was called Creativity vs. Entropy, China, the New Center of Civilization. And... uh, I think his opening paragraph sort of sets the tone quite a bit, so I thought I'd read it here. I'm feeling more and more in recent months that, as difficult as it may be to believe, our world is moving away from seemingly endless wars. Make no mistake, we haven't seen the end of wars at all. The dynamic and the war energy is changing, however. Not without a frenzy of self-conceit does the so-called Western world throw forks, China, pots, pans, rolling pins, anything it can get its bloody hands on, spoiled child, throwing a gargantuan temper tantrum. It tries to deny this reality over which it has less control by the second. The world is moving away from wars, from an, if you will, patriarchal psychosis of control, a matrix of fear, shame, guilt, 
rage, hate. What is beginning to emerge in what we in the West have egotistically termed the East is construction, building new great projects to uplift a sector of mankind ignored for more than a thousand years. This transformative positive motion is what, if anything, will save our humankind from the mass death and destruction some in the West so dev- devoutly wish for us. So he, he puts things in pretty stark terms there, and uh, it looks like we could go in any number of directions. You know, when, when you were reading that, Elon, I was, uh, yeah, I was kind of debating, you know, are we really, you know, is the world really moving away from, from war? Um, you know, the United States does still have uh, an immense amount of power, even though its influence uh, is lessening. And, you know, it still has uh, thousands of uh, military bases all over the world, you know, occupying, um, you know, so many nations. And, you know, it has all these plans that, that, that sets in motion. So, you know, are, is the world moving away from war? And, you know, when you think about uh, where uh, most of the power in the world exists, yeah, it is in uh, the emerging uh, Eurasia, and the the lessening of the inf- of the of the West's influence over Eurasia. I think you know it can be said that there is a uh, a building momentum uh, mm-hmm. for uh, you know a different type of world. Um, that yeah is that that isn't built on war. Mm-hmm. That is built on uh, developing relationships. It's, it's this multipolar uh, idea, um, and yeah. You know, so there is there is something definitely that's 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 there, and um, and the U.S. is not going to be a part of it. Uh, will Europe be a part of it? No. Uh, you know, we don't know yet. <laughs> uh, the way the way it's kind of shaking out looks like you know they're kind of intent to go down with the United States. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll try to look at some of the, um, some of those elements, I think, uh, on today's show. Um, you know, there, there's, there's such a contrast between, uh, like you said, you know, the, uh, you know, these forces in China in Russia, and, uh, all the many partnerships that building and, Operates, uh, and those who are under their thumb and doing their bidding. Um, so I think you know we'll, we'll kind of talk about some of those dynamics. And just touching on that question, uh, is this the end of these in, you know these crazy, crazy duplicitous wars? I remember reading a book a while back called uh, "The End of Empire," and it was by a French statistician, and he took issue to people uh, making the comments of this hyper-warfare and America's, you know, flashing all its military muscle and everything. And because he said that this isn't the sign of a strong empire, Mm -hmm. this is the sign of a dying empire. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, what we've seen carried out throughout the Middle East and throughout North Africa is uh, symptoms of this dying empire. I think that uh, what makes that comment and it's going to it's in the grave but it's going to be out all the way to the 
some uh, sense in that question. The answer is uh, yes. This is <laughs> this could be the end of that um, of the insanity, at least. Mm-hmm. The more clarity brought to to affairs. Well, you know what, what's kind of interesting in the way he he sets up the question is uh, he also had another article uh, some months ago called the uh, remarkable uh, Russian Renaissance, uh, in which. He, uh, um, had his chief since the which really long on this in the media and let uh, what the variety ways that um, Hey, Lon, hold on a second. Yeah. You're you're, uh, you're really breaking up there. I don't think we caught anything that you just said. Okay. You want to start over again? I think I, I could hear that. We'll check. There. Does everyone hear me now? Heard that. How's that, everybody? Hey, so I'm just going to pick where where I left off, which, which was that. Um, okay, thanks, bud. Uh, no, still tipping her. Uh, we're going we're gonna to work on our connection once again, and, and apologize for the uh, the choppiness. Until maybe I'll just have the support I am in Star Wars, since, <laughs> since that isn't so important. Thank you. Um, yeah, for those who can hear this, it's definitely beneficial. Yeah, I felt like Star Wars missed, missed some good opportunities um, to uh, kind of go off in some new direction. The, the the artist, the, the original G. They just recycled the whole entire original trilogy in one movie. Yeah. Are things a little bigger in the first? Oh, it's coming. It'll be good for a second, and then it'll it'll cut out, and then come back. So I don't know. Uh, able to hear uh, Shane clearly. Fifty percent I'm hearing from the uh, chat room. Yeah, we've recycled the um, the internet connection or plus stuff. Or still skipping everybody. Still a little choppy. Well, I could hurt. I heard we heard that just fine. Okay, so maybe we'll just keep going here and see how it goes, seeing as we, uh, we've we done everything that we can on our end. Okay, we're getting some more better messages. Thank you, chatters. Um, so we were, we were talking about a, a prior article by William Engdahl some months back where he mentioned, um, it's called The Remarkable Renaissance of Russia. I'm paraphrasing. And uh, 
the gist of it was his acknowledgement of, of all the things that Russia had been doing since the 90s, which was uh, really constructive and uh, far less to uh, um, even kind of trying to uh, lift its people up, get the economy back in motion, uh, provide services, um, uh, and just even basic services, uh, heating where it needed to be, um, uh, institutions, uh, educational institutions back online, uh, kicking out the, uh, the the kind of pathocratic, bureaucratic, oligarchic uh, infrastructure that was set up and and uh, had been taking advantage of of Russia's weakness um, due to the poor leadership of Yeltsin in the 90s. And so, you know, I think I think that's where Ingall is kind of coming from. He's he's saying, you know, these are countries, China and Russia, that are literally lifting themselves up by their bootstraps, um, having reflected upon policies and uh, and and ways of um, running itself that were clearly detrimental. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we quite usually on the show uh, point to a lot of the really stupid, destructive, chaotic policies of NATO and, and the West and how that's been affecting other nations and what it's trying to do um, at the expense of so many other peoples around the world just to keep itself afloat. Um, but we're we're also today going to look at, and we will discuss some of those things in contrast to what nations that are truly trying to be constructive do, what their leaders sound like, what they say, and um, and so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. Some of the biggest lately uh, have been focused on Turkey, uh, which we've been covering a lot here, um, and now that. Uh, you folks can't see this in the studio, but William just mockingly made a uh, a zig heil. William, do do you want to explain that reference? Well, it seems like uh, Erdogan made some big news uh, uh, talking about his presidency and what he's trying to achieve in his country, and he says it's very similar to what uh, Hitler in Germany had done during that time. Well, yeah, the the article uh, he was talking like Erdogan was uh, he was talking about a desire for Turkey to adopt the presidential system of government, and uh, when he was talking with reporters, he cited uh, Hitler, uh, Hitler's Nazi Germany, as as an example of you know the the type of system that he's talking about. I, I mean. <laughs> He's like, yeah, there's there's many different examples. Hitler's Nazi Germany is one. And there's, you know, many modern ones as well. And, uh, <laughs> I mean... Well, that's wrong in so many ways. It's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's right because it's accurate. Like, this is his role model, right? That's true. Uh, and, and, but, like, it's, it's wrong that people just, you know, especially in the West, are really missing um, putting one and one together to make two, and just like hello, Turkey is. I mean, you know, Turkey has been um, pretty vicious, uh, not just lately, 
but you know they they've had a long history of you know being this um pathocratic violent government and you know ever since pretty much its formation uh which uh you know after so after the first world war turkey was formed um uh, the 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 ottoman empire you know collapsed uh france and its allies like they you know they basically took apart the ottoman empire and you know restructured everything and uh shortly after uh turkey was formed and uh turkey had its movement for or its its war for independence and during that time that's when they created these turkish borders and the these borders you know is basically uh carving up uh you know as part of um uh get the name of the agreement is the um disguise ticket Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so you know that that was the that was the the, the initial I, I'd say like you know the, the the forming of you know what would come um, when we look at uh, the Kurds and um, this is this is the point I'm trying to get to uh, the Kurdistan like that's it's it's a region you know in the Middle East. Where you know uh, parts are in Turkey, Syria, uh, Iran, and Iraq, and, and you know it's it's these these people are all split. You know uh, some of them have autonomous regions in their, in their respective countries, but it's it's essentially you know they're in the center of it all. And when you look at the Kurds <clears throat> in Turkey, um, there's been you know, especially for the past uh, several decades. You know, there's been a, a renewed movement for uh, wanting their own autonomy, uh, wanting their own uh, their own land, or they wanted to. Yeah, they basically want their own autonomy and uh, to be able to rule themselves. And uh, you know, they have their own uh, military, and which you know runs. You know, it's not just in Turkey, but you know, it runs in uh, Iraq as well. And uh, but just getting back to what Turkey has done to these people, I mean, it is ridiculous. Uh, you know, they, they've had, like, you know, they uh, they just slaughter um, the Kurdish people. You know, they ta- they've taken away, um, they've tried to take away so much of their, their culture and uh, even their language, you know, trying to um, you know, teach them Turkish instead of their native uh, language. Um, you know, it, it's very much in line with uh, how the Native Americans were treated in the United States, and you know they're they're even tried to rename be renamed Mountain Turks, you know, instead of um, calling them Kurds because they just basically want to deny that they their their whole heritage and and you know who they were. So um, you know, there has been this renewal of violence too, and. Just this past week, um, Erdogan and Turkey, the Turkish government, you know, they have gone. They've gone in, and they they've, they've killed. Um, you know, I think it was like something like 200 uh, Kurdish soldiers, and also like 150 uh, Kurdish civilians. And this is this is really for 
Albuquerque. I mean, they are an overt um, pathological uh, state. And, you know, their, their treatment of the Kurds has been, you know, a big reason why they haven't been able to join the EU. But now, you know, now that they're, you know, basically doing United States bidding, you know, they are, uh, it looks like they're moving in that direction. It's something very similar to that's uh, happening with Ukraine. Uh, you see a similar situation with the Donbass region. Mm-hmm. You know, and Ukrainians trying to suppress those kind of, those people and enforce the Ukrainian language versus the Russian language. You see a, a very similar playbook going on there, and now you're seeing Turkey sort of aligning with Ukraine. Um, even going so far as to help with a blockade of Crimea. Um, even the Turkish government has pretty much said that, well, you know, NATO isn't really paying us much attention or the West, and they're also not paying that much attention to Ukraine. So we in Ukraine have a lot in common. We should join together and make this grand nation of Ukraine and Turkey join together. I mean, you're starting to see this, this Turkmen empire starting to uh, uh, evolve. The craziest thing, I think, about what's happening in Turkey is how blatantly crazy it is. Erdogan is really, I don't know if he hasn't had good acting uh, skills, but, I mean, he's just out and out uh, parading himself as as a lunatic. I mean, because just right before he cited Hitler's Germany as being his, you know, his role model for what he wants Turkey to be like, he, you know, they they had this huge uh, staged media event where he was trying to save uh, a man who was supposedly suicidal sitting on the side of a bridge. You know, he was going to, uh, he was he's having family problems. And so, the, uh, you know, there's a video of it. The man's on the side of the bridge and Erdogan comes up in his limo and, you know, opens the door and then supposedly, you know, uh, says that he can solve all of the man's problems. And the man, oh, thank you so much, Erdogan. You've saved Christmas for everyone. <laughs> and then comes out that on Fort Rust, they uh, they they uh, said that this guy was likely a Turkish uh, an uh, agent. A Turkish he was a, they had pictures proving he was an, an agent of the government. Um, and and then, you know, Erdogan just goes right off and says that he's uh, going to model his country after Hitler, you know. I mean, it's just this kind of schizophrenia or schizophrenic reality that's going on in Turkey, which really makes me feel for the the sane Turkish citizens who are having to put up with all of this, this nonsense because it does look like, um, you know, in the past, Erdogan's, he's... Uh, He's he's done a lot of you know nasty things, and there's so a lot of uh, his commitment to funding ISIS and to and to crushing the Kurds. But now it seems like with a wink and a nod, the West has said we'll let you do whatever you want as long as you act like our mad dog and start um, and start putting pressure on on Russia. His mask is slipping. Yes, yeah, so he's not even hiding it anymore. Yeah, it's like he doesn't really need to because they've all kind of basically agreed in one way or another that, okay, so now's the time to be as psychopathic as you want. So everybody just, you know, it's a race to the finish line. Um, and well, I'd say, like, you know, his his mask, I don't know that it's, like, completely off. Although I think he's I think he's trying really hard to maintain it. <laughs> you know? yeah. he's, he's getting desperate. Like how desperate do you have to be when when you watch that video? It's just so pathetic. Yeah, with the and, and the and filming of the suicide, yeah, the cameraman yeah, there, yeah. and, and yeah, you know, he gets out of his car and he's reaching out to the guy. And, you know, the 
I, I have to give credit to this uh, intelligence officer. Because, you know, I think he played, when he came in, you know, he was sobbing. And, you know, he, he played a decent part, like, you know, his acting skills, you know, being an intelligence officer and stuff. Uh, I'm sure that can, you know, play a part in his background. But, man, like, that was just, you can, you, you see right away that, you know, it's just so fake. Turkey would. Well, and at the same time that um, that this is all going on in Turkey, just right across the border in northern Syria, uh, the Kurds, uh, the YPG, are uh, are really giving it to ISIS, and they just took, uh, I believe it's called the Tishreen Dam, and uh, they're uh, that's in northern Syria, and it was a pretty strategic spot, and it's, it looks like they're going to be taking or cutting off ISIS's supply lines. And uh, Erdogan came out and said that that was Turkey's red line. If they cross that, you know, then all bets are off. And around the same time, he's, you know, he's really, he's crushing the, the Kurds, uh, civilian population in the southeast of Turkey, which is roughly, you know, right around in the same area that the, the YPG uh, Kurds originate from. And so it, it looks like, you know, what he's doing is he's sending a message. He's trying to distract. He's doing everything that he can to to help his uh, little, you know, puppet army uh, uh, that he shares with uh, the West and Israel and Syria. And, you know, he is, probably is getting pretty desperate and looking for unlikely allies there in Ukraine and, and wherever he can find them. Yeah, I mean, it, it just seems like uh, like Erdogan and Turkey and his government are just kind of uh, almost mirrors uh, for the U.S., this kind of... Um, you know, not unlike Israel, uh, these are these are countries that are. Um, I mean, their whole modus operandi has been to uh, to kind of infiltrate and covertly destroy other countries, be parasitical, uh, in order to kind of lift themselves up. Um, they create nothing, uh, and this isn't to say that that Turkey and and Israel and other nations. Uh, Saudi Arabia don't have the potential. Uh, I mean, look at the U.S. The U.S. can be incredibly innovative. Um, but, you know, when you have uh, psychopaths in positions of power uh, who are basically uh, rigging the game in, in every way, and like we just heard with uh, Erdogan, I mean, he's, he's trying to accrue more power to himself, a la Hitler, um, you know, fortunately, we're hearing that uh, as much as 40 to, to 50 percent of the population isn't buying it. Uh, they're they're against him having more power. So um, it'll be interesting to see what developments come of that. Uh, and yeah, just looking at the all the chaos that's caused in these regions, and looking at it from kind of that big picture perspective, the uh, you know back in. 2000, uh, China was holding a forum in Africa, mm-hmm. and they uh, they basically had this plan with 40 African nations uh, sent representatives to a big meeting to basically come up with an idea to invest and for everyone to meet, to make money and to you know, lift the living standards uh, throughout all of Africa. And you know, there's been similar plans, you know, with uh, with most of the countries that the U.S. Is uh, is got their finger in, but um, China's strategy at that time and still uh, has been to 
to extend uh, an offer to invest into in infrastructure so that they can make money and these countries can make money and and just create this mutually beneficial relationship. Well, if you see what happened since 2000 in Africa, I mean, of course, the U.S. response has been to just utterly wreak havoc throughout the region. And we've had AFRICOM, and we've got these drone bases that just uh, that uh, that can just wreak havoc across the continent. And then we've had Boko Haram come in and and wreak havoc in the uh, in the area. And one of the the biggest things that happens as a result is the fact that they can't obviously develop them. They can't develop, they can't put their energy into these relationships. China's influence is quote-unquote contained, which is in its own way sort of a psyop because, you know, it's just a naturally human um, reaction to want to, to reach out and to establish these kinds of relationships. And we've seen just massive destabilization. We got Libya, the fall of Gaddafi, um, who was really a figurehead for this kind of pan-African development, which, if left to their own devices, would have been an, uh, just a natural ally for for China. And we, the future we would have seen would have been quite different, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. Um, you know, China creates uh, these investment. Uh, banks and structures, um, holds these conferences, uh, creates alliances uh, that can be mutually beneficial uh, to both itself and these countries that it, it comes to meet with. And like you said, Corey, what, you know, what is the U.S.'s response? AFRICOM, which is this like, you know, it's just like this military answer to the whole thing. It isn't, uh, it isn't a proposal to, you know, well, we can make you a better deal here. Uh, this is uh, we're going to come in here and, and kick your butts because you're not behaving the way we would have you behave. Yeah, you can't forget about the uh, NGOs uh, being part of that. It's a classic example that's currently happening right now in a little country called Burundi. Now, that's a little African nation that's more on the western side of or, I mean, on the eastern side of the Great Lakes of Africa. Now, that, that country is just a little bit about the size of uh, Connecticut, so it's not a very big country. So you wouldn't think they would attract a lot of attention, but they are. They have some rich resources there, especially in land and agriculture. Um, but the big thing is the president over there. He is uh, called Pierre Nkurzinza. Uh, he's uh, one of the most popular leaders in Africa today. And uh, since he came into power in 2005, he has built more schools than all the combined rulers since the independence. He's also a keen ecologist and is known to spend weekends working in the fields with peasants. And he has initiated vast tree planting programs to protect the fields with and, uh, and the country's environment. And uh, the Burundi government intends to turn the country into a major exporter of fruit and free medical care for pregnant women. And that, that has been provided with newly constructed health care centers throughout the country. Now, the West, of course, can't have somebody like that as a, as a leader. And he was trying to go for a third term in his presidency. The world uh, says, uh, that. Uh, against your constitution to do that. And when 
Uganda, uh, the Burundis looked at their constitution, there wasn't anything there that would prevent him from being the president for a third term. Mm-hmm. But they, so they hired these NGOs like Amnesty International and such to start sowing these seeds of disruption with the Hutu and the Titsu people just to prevent them from being united and having a, a, a good example of what other African nations should be doing. And, and of course, they were also working with Russia and China, which is a big no-no. I mean, that's what AFRICOM is in Africa for in the first place, is to keep Russia and Chinese influence in check. I mean, just such a small country, and yet it, it's just the same old playbook over and over again. So yeah, basically wherever you know there is a seed of uh, humanity, you know the the U.S. just can't stand it. You know it it it's 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 that bad. You know the the pathological nature of um, you know, not just the West but so centered in the, the United States, it hates to see creativity, um, and you know it's it's awesome to see. Yeah, these um, these leaders like this emerge, but time and time again, you know, we see we see them destroyed. You know, we saw it in um, in uh, in Libya under Gaddafi, and you know, it was uh, it, it's 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 devastating to watch. And you know, what's what's interesting, I think, you know, when we look back at you know the history of uh, the United States going in and you know just wiping out civilizations, you know, it's always um, not not just non-Western people, but these people who have a history of, uh, you know, a tribal structure. You know, it's not just a uh, bureaucratic system. Um, you know, the Native Americans, um, Africans, and, you know, and many Middle Eastern countries, they all have this basis of... Uh, tribal leadership. And that's what's missing, really, in, in the U.S. I'm going to interrupt you for a second, Shane. Is every, did everyone hear Shane okay there? We're just having a look at our audio here. So if our chatters could just comment, or are you still hearing us okay? Yeah, it's coming through all right for me. Okay. All right, wonderful, thanks. I think we have a, a caller. Um, let's see. Hello, caller. Are you there? What's your name? Nope. I think it might, okay. might be just a listener. Might be just a listener. Yeah, I think so. Oh, and just a number to to really top off what what Shane was uh, talking about there with this need for top down control and uh, that just seems so prevalent in the West and that's really like just probably about just about everybody is feeling at this point. Um, the, just a few years ago, I mean, the richest 25 people in the West, two and 60 of them were Americans, had a combined wealth of $1 trillion, which was, to put that in perspective, more than uh, $3.5 billion of the world poor. $3.5 billion people, all of their wealth added together is equal to... Know, to the top of the West, which 
you know, I mean, obviously that is, that's not a natural outcome. That's very artificial. That's created through laws. It's created through special relationships. It's created especially through the banking system that we, uh, that we have today and which is being exported to a lot of countries. A centralized banking system that will get money and then create the interest rates to, and decide how much you're going to pay back for the loans that you give them. And just the the gambling that's gone on instead of the kind of industry that we see Russia and China uh, investing in. In the West, what we have are these financial instruments, which have been billed as, you know, mankind, you know, the greatest gift from the gods because everyone will get rich and, you know, the rising tide will lift all boats. But and all it's done is created absolute misery, you know, but for as long as those 225 people are feeling good, and, the, and they're the ones who have all the, you know, all the clout in the banks and in the politics, then you don't see, you're not going to see a change. And I think when it comes down to it, these people, they like to see a lot of money from the, you know, their investments in, in bombs and in all the infrastructure that has to be developed when they destroy a nation. And, you know, they sleep, they sleep well at the end. They don't how many children are killed to them basically down and they just see a bunch of ants or cattle, you know, and just pawns, essentially. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to play that um, that segment from uh, The Third Man one of these days. Uh, that, that famous speech that uh, Orson Welles as Harry Lai makes about um, you know, viewing people as, as ants uh, it seems to capture it well. But, you know, when you were, when you were Speaking in uh, the context of the economy and it being speculation, Corey, I was thinking that uh, and gambling. Um, this is this is what the West has nurtured. I mean, we've we have reached the apex of of uh, speculation. There, you know, the the creative spirit of of building things it may still be there, but it seems to be overridden by this uh, impetus to make the fast buck. Um, uh, Williams spoken in the past about uh, high-speed trading mechanisms. Um, you know, I remember even in the mid-2000s reading warnings about derivatives uh, being in the hundreds of billions, these, these flimsy investments that so trillions. much... Trillions, actually, yeah. Uh, which was largely responsible for the recession in 2008 and which will be uh, in part responsible for the reception or depression that we're going to see coming up in, in the U.S. And um, it's, like it, it's like it's replaced uh, any kind of uh, a priority or value on, um, on creating something, on, uh, on actually uh, getting value for other people. Uh, it seems to be what Creating anything? Like they're not even creating. They're not even creating. It's just, you know, it's all this like smoke and mirrors. Uh, these schemes that, yeah, they're they're you know, it's money making money off of money, and yeah, you know, there's nothing actually being created. It's it's just uh, it's a completely phony system. And how long can you know it sustain itself? Yeah, you know, that that type of system, like eventually reality is going to come into play at some point, and and the reality is that China, we were talking about earlier in the show, China and Russia and you know, many of their partners, 
they are actually creating things. I mean, when the United States wants to create something, it goes over to China and says, hey, can you create this stuff for us? Because we don't know how to do it anymore. And sell it to us for cheap. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, there is, there is going to be this day of reckoning when, you know, reality becomes so apparent that, you know, the, the, uh, the, and the lies and the facade and you know, this whole false system becomes so apparent that they're going to clash together, and, you know, I think reality is actually going to win because it's real. Well, yeah, I mean, China just released their, I think it was like their 13th five-year plan um, for the future, you know, which basically included a bunch of really practical things, you know, making insurance, uh, what they call cheaper for the people, you know, greater um, opportunities for urban uh, or for uh, poor people to move into cities to, to um to to get better jobs, greater land projects for people who want to be farmers, and they they basically they have a plan for five years. I mean, I don't remember the last time somebody in America came out and said this is a plan we have for to make America uh, better for the next five years, unless it's one of these crazy guys who like make America great again by you know being racist as as you possibly can. Um, but yeah, when you uh, you're just talking about the all that gambling. Um, that goes on, and I mean that's basically the plan. I mean the plan is they they're going to get as rich as they can, and then if it all falls down, they're ah who cares? You know that we made a ton of money. You know, in reality, is it really worth that much? <laughs> I mean, it's, it can't be worth the the lives and welfare of so many millions, if not billions, of people. But to these, but to these pathological individuals, that they don't know the value of anything. They have no idea the value of of human life uh, would really be possible in a, in a world where you invested more in, in humanity than you did in a stupid, you know, derivative. Uh, I mean, they have just don't understand that, and they'll never understand that. And, I mean, and we're seeing the fact that uh, what we're going to be seeing in the next, you know, who knows how long, but uh, when the U.S. collapses, it's just the seeds of our own destruction were sown years ago when they decided to ship off all the jobs to China so they could make more money, uh, when they decided to um, to allow greater uh, gambling in, with the banks so that they could make even more money, and when they decided they repealed all the regulatory mechanisms, when they decided to, you know, to try and destroy uh, Africa and the Middle East, I mean, just so that investment, real investment, couldn't take place and they would have no rivals, no contenders, We'll be seeing the the fruits of that here coming up pretty soon. Well, it, you know, it was under Clinton that uh, Glass Steagall uh, was um, was taken out, and that was a uh, an economic uh, policy that uh, didn't permit investment banks to um, with Wall Street. If I and um, you know, the guy who convinced him to do this was uh, Robert Rubin. Uh, who was a Wall Street guy? Who who was um, part of uh, you know this this vampire squid that uh, that so often gets referred to? Um, and uh, this deregulation is is exactly what permitted uh, this disaster they saw in 2008, and we're going to see again in 2016. Um, but you know, it, it seems like part of what's required of a, a country or its leaders to uh, act constructively or creatively is to just see things on the ground as they really are, uh, just to be objective about those issues that they're really facing 
and uh, and work hard as hell to address them as they can. And uh, on that note, you know, we had um, Putin coming out with the nine key points of Russia's national security strategy for 2016. And, um, you know, I tend to think that this was as much for his own people as it was a statement to the world about just what Russia is facing, just trying to remain in our country. And one of the very first, the first thing he says is color revolutions. Uh, He talks about corruption being one of the key threats to Russia's security. And what is this corruption but, you know, these NGOs and and outside influences trying to rile up uh, and fund certain groups within Russia, certain plants, certain agents, to um, to say, oh, what Russia's doing is all wrong, and and we need more democracy. And so people hear democracy, and they're, of course, you know, that little switch goes off on their head. They don't even really know what it means in context, uh, but they react. Um, so he's, he's kind of saying to the world, I want to, first of all, you guys are breaking up again, but I want to comment on on just some of those aspects that you brought up there, because one of the things that Putin had said was that corruption is a problem. Now, I think you're right that that uh, part of that corruption is the outside influence, uh, the so-called you know fifth column in Russia, and uh, the external foreign forces that want to bring Russia into kind of the state that it was in in the 90s, where it was just a um, you know just a natural resource to be pillaged. But there's also a problem of just the, the kind of corruption internal that you see in every country. But what I think what makes Putin different is that he is explicit that there are problems in Russia and that are Russian problems, but he's actually doing something about it. Because I don't think, I haven't seen any leaders in the West talk about corruption in the way that Putin does or set up organizations and parallel structures to combat corruption in their own countries. Now, can you imagine Obama coming out and saying that that there is a deep problem of corruption in American politics, and we have to do something about it. We have to get rid of these corrupt politicians. It's not going to happen. Um, you might get um, some kind of base, like well, you, you might hear it every once in a while, but it never becomes a policy and they never do anything about it. And that's really what the problem is when you look at all these Western nations, is the deep problem of corruption. So when you look at politics in all these countries, it is just, um, it's just a den of thieves and, uh, and corruption. Um, and that's all that really matters for these people um, in these positions of influence and power. Um, one of our commenters on the chat room made a comment just a while back when you were talking about Russia's five-year plan. And uh, so Shawnee Bond said, um, well, the U.S. had their whole five countries in five years plan. And that really, I think, gets to the heart of the matter, is that, um, that American politicians do have plans, but they are entirely geared towards maintaining power and expanding power um, in the face of their you know, imminent demise and destruction of the empire that they're ruling. So all they can think about is their own personal power and their power on the world stage. And when you have that as your ultimate goal, 
you don't have um, or you, you naturally won't do anything that will actually benefit um, your country or the people in the ways that really matter. So yeah, you'll go and invade other countries and um, in, in foreign policy, but then in your own, let's say, district or constituency, the only thing that really matters is staying on to power. So you have all kinds of backroom deals, you have all sorts of lobbying and bribes, money changing hands, but none of these people are actually thinking, okay, what do I actually need to do? What can I do to make this country a better place? that doesn't even enter their minds. And if it does enter their minds, then they realize very quickly that there's nothing they can do about it. And I doubt there are very many, very many people like that, because if you, if you get into politics, in the States at least, or in Canada or the UK, that's not really something that you think about. It's just, it's just not the way that the game is played. And I, th I think that um, there's a there's a kind of growing awareness of this at it's at least beneath the surface and you can even see it on television shows like it seeps into pop culture with games like uh like TV shows like House of Cards where you see like and or shows like The Wire and these shows are actually pretty accurate in the way that they portray just what goes on is that these people are not very good human beings that's what it comes down to they don't have any realistic or good goals or values that would actually make the country a better place. And so when you look at something, someone like Putin, Putin is um, what I'd say a good man in a, a bad system, because the system in Russia still isn't perfect, just like anywhere else, but at least we have this, this figure, this, this person in a position of power who, um, who has the ideals, who has the values, and the kind of but at the same time, the practical know-how on how to get things done, even if it's a slow process, but things actually do get done. Um, I think that Pierre's article that he wrote uh, on SOT, which just went up yesterday or the day before, is actually a really good one. If any of our listeners haven't read it yet, just I think you should check it out. Just go to the SOT homepage and read it. Because the point he makes is that Putin really is kind of like a hero for some people, for a lot of people around the world, not just in Russia. And the reason he's a hero is because he embodies these these values, and he kind of he acts he plays the role of a hero by saying and acting according to these values that are good and that will eventually lead and have led to positive changes within the country and around the world. And we don't have that anywhere else, really. When you look at Obama, Obama might kind of pretend to or try to. Um, present himself as this kind of hope, this figure of hope and change, but when you look at what he actually gets done, it's nothing, and it's more of the same, and it's actually worse than, or, or it's, well, it's either the same or worse than even George Bush before him. So you have this this big discrepancy between the words that he says and, and his actual results and what he actually gets done. And so that doesn't leave anyone with any act with any with any real hope for believing in Obama, because there's nothing there. He's just another part of this system. So I just think that the well, go, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, I think I think those are all really good points. Uh, you know, uh, at the start of Putin's, uh, I mean, he was thrust into into this whole situation with. Uh, with Chechnya and the terrorism there, but he also realized after just a couple of years 
that uh, for the country to get back on its feet, uh, he would really have to do something about all of these gigantic mafioso-type money interests that, that had been raping the country uh, mm-hmm. for so long. Um, so he, he, you know, there was this kind of two-pronged attack, as, as you kind of alluded to. Uh, you know, he had to, um, he had to get things going again. He had to get uh, factories going and and uh, and job and jobs and and other sorts of uh, social services at a, at a very basic level uh, functioning. And you know, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned o- Obama, Harrison. Um, one of the glaringly obvious uh, things, although I, I it, it hasn't been until now that I thought of this, but you know, we have in this country these Black Lives Matter protests that are legitimate and uh, an, an expression of, of anger and um, an outrage over the, the sheer number of, um, of blacks uh, who have been killed at the hands of people who are supposed to be protecting them. And mm-hmm. here he is, this first, you know, black president who whose nice blurbs in, in, his, uh, in his fluffy bios about admiring Malcolm X, and, and he's done absolutely nothing yep. uh, to help lift his people or even speak uh, in any kind of strong condemnation of, of, what, of what we're seeing today. Yeah, he, um, should be pu- he should be publicly and vocally shaming every police department he should, he should be saying this country has a big, this country has a huge problem, and this is absolutely unacceptable, and we're not going to stop until we fix it. I mean, that's what a real leader, that's what a real hero, that's what a, what a real figure for hope and change would do. Even if he just say it, but he doesn't even say it. No, and and that's because he is the problem, yeah. and and all of his all of the policies that he was along with abroad. Um, all these uh, ventures, these imperial uh, uh, policies, uh, are all reflected in the, the militarism that we're seeing here. Um, and, you know, I just wish uh, and hope that someday soon um, he's going to get a little taste and a little, and a little, uh, a little feel for the anger that's been directed towards Rahm Emanuel, rightfully so, towards yeah. him. That uh-huh. that someone other than Cornell West comes out and says, "What are you doing? What what's wrong with you?" Uh, you know, in, in at least as strong a terms as those, if not worse. Mm-hmm. Well, that that just brings me yeah. to another point. Uh, or do you want to add something? I was just going to say that that corruption that you're talking about, I mean, that's just, it's its gotten to the point of just absolute mayhem and that the police departments look like just armed uh, cartels. They just go around, they do whatever they want. They've been murdering. I mean, just in the past week, we have some of the most egregious, disgusting stories on thought about what police have been uh, getting away with in, in America. And it's because, like you guys have said, there's no... There's no one in authority who is saying, A, there's this corruption problem. B, we're gonna, we have to do something about it. They're not even saying that. And it's being, so it's a tacit approval, and these people know that they can get away with it, and they won't stop. Mm-hmm. Well, the point I wanted to, to make is that 
Well, at least in the alternative media, this is background. Uh, there's kind of a split that I've seen. I mean, the, the vast majority of alternative media um, have really been on board with Russia and Putin. Um, and you can just see that on pretty much, you know, most alternative news websites. And, of course, we we carry and comment on a lot of them on SOT. But there are still a few that um, that are still, uh, like, really anti-Russian, anti-Putin, or at least... Um, well, yeah, I guess that's just the best way to put it. I'm talking about places like uh, Non-Aligned Media and the Corbett Report and even Sabelle Edmonds' Boiling Frogs post. But um, I think, well, one of the arguments they use is that things aren't great in Russia, things are probably worse than are presented, and that to to um, to make excuses for or to support Putin is like is like supporting the lesser of two evils. And I think that's just a totally, totally wrong way to look at it. Because really, um, if, like Obama, supporting Obama would be like supporting the, maybe the lesser of some evils, but I don't know really um, who would be the greater evil. I mean, someone like Trump may, um, may give the, <clears throat> like kind of the blustery appearance of being a greater evil, but I don't know if, if, um, you know, a country under Trump would be any materially worse than it is under Obama. But um, what's the point I'm really trying to make? Well, okay, so when you have someone like Obama, you look at them and you look at their policies and what they do and they don't, and it's it's really, I don't like thinking about it in terms of like lesser of two evils, it's just plain evil. Um, because these people, like Obama just, there's nothing good about him, like, at all, in any of his policies and all the things that he doesn't, well, in his, his policies of omission and commission. So he does bad things, and he doesn't say anything or do anything about the, about the, the things that are actually, um, that could be changed. But then when you look at someone like Putin or, like, countries that seem to actually be trying to, to, to better themselves and better their relationships with other nations and actually be a force for change and good in the world. Yeah, they're not perfect, but they're good in the sense that they're making the best, the best decisions possible given the conditions that they are in. And I think that's really how we have to judge, um, judge the decisions and the policies of leaders and nations is not to be total idealists, because total idealism is impossible in world politics, but to look at if they are making the best decisions that they can. Now, I think in a lot of cases, Putin and Russia are doing so. If we look at the case in America, in the United States, they're not even close. They're making totally wrong decisions. They're not even inching their way towards anything that can approach a good decision. And and like you said too, Harrison, when you know you look at the conditions uh, or the environment uh, of each country, I mean, the United States has uh, such ideal uh, conditions. You know, it has so much. It has this influence, and it's using that for such awful, awful things. And then you look at a country like Russia. Which, even though you know it has the the fountain of you know, unity, it's still with uh, a new 
you know, it's very it's, and and it's 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 still in the process of rebuilding. And what it's been able to accomplish with what it has is, is not short of amazing. You know, um, it's, it's it's just remarkable. You know, they're they're really utilizing uh, the the assets and you know everything that they have. Whereas in the United States, you know, it's just um, you know there's so much. Um, what's 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 the words I'm looking for here? It's like yeah, you know, there's so much excess, and you know things aren't aren't valued. Um, things are you know just tossed away in uh, American culture and society. But you know it, it it's reflected from you know what's happening in the government and how the the you know how our government utilizes its resources they are largely stolen but you know that's you know, that's a good point that you know the conditions looking at the conditions and how you know the the leaders in those countries um utilize those things well, you know it's it's been said on the show before um you know, russia has been able to accomplish under so much adversity adversity in the past 15 years is uh you know, and you just said this a couple of minutes ago, Shane. It's really nothing short of miraculous. Um, and I think I think part of the takeaway from all of these things that Putin addresses in his nine key points, if he didn't have to expend so much energy, his government didn't work so hard on focusing uh, and uh, neutralizing all of these outside influences. Um, yes, of course, there are inside influences as well. But uh, you know he's got this um, this behemoth of of uh, forces that are acting against uh, you know they're just being able to to do business with the world in a in a healthy way uh, or protecting their borders or not having to think about the terrorism um, in in its in its you know large borders um, so it's like you know. It's like this is what I need. This is what we need, just to have some breathing room um, in order to put ourselves into, uh, you know, working harder in all the other directions we need to to go into. Um, and America, uh, I think it, it shows our officials uh, going back decades, but I mean, just their their short sightedness and their lack of imagination and the fact that we had. We did. There was a, a legitimate, what you call it, a unipolar moment. You know, it was that moment where the Soviet Union had had collapsed essentially, and and then all of a sudden, no, what? Nobody knows what to do. It's just like, okay, America's the number one. You know, yeehaw, America's number one. Nobody thought ahead to the fact that, okay, we're not gonna. There's this isn't gonna last forever. Everyone went and they bought the you know the books. Uh, I can't remember his name. I think it was Fukuyama about the you know this this huge unipolar moment in America, the end of history, and you know now America had achieved its God-given status as ruler of the world, and people just bought that and then immediately were vectored into all of these crazy shenanigans that we've seen since then, um, and it especially happened after 9/11. Uh, and at that moment, then there was nothing to resist. There was no, there was no policy. There was no idea that we had as a nation because we don't really see. It doesn't seem like we see ourselves as a nation, as a nation that is of individuals that has some sort of a purpose, 
some reason to exist besides just being God's chosen country, besides just being the exceptional nation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think that a lot of that is because we don't have leaders like Putin or like, um, like other, like leaders who say, okay, we have this responsibility for one another, for the next generation um, and for the world essentially to, to act in a certain way or to accomplish certain goals. And it's just left us like a bunch of spoiled brats. <laughs> Well, um, we recently had an article uh, posted uh, to Saad, Best of Web, by Pepe Escobar, which is entitled Empire of Chaos versus Eurasian Integration in 2016, uh, where he talks about this, uh, this tension uh, between uh, you know, China's um, and, and Russia's attempts to integrate with Europe and, uh, and the United States doing its thing. And, you know, when you just said some of those things, Corey, I was reminded of um, the way that uh, Escobar ends the article. He, he quotes from Joseph Kahn, Darkness, and um, uh, which, by the way, Apocalypse Now, if you've never seen it, is, is based on loosely. But uh, here's a quote. He says, there is a taint of death, a flavor or mortality in lies. To tear treasure out of the bowels of the land was their desire with no more moral purpose at the back of it than there is in burglars breaking into a safe. We could not understand because we were too far and could not remember because we were traveling in the night of first ages, of those ages that are gone, leaving hardly a sign and no memories. And, you know, it, it, it goes back to Erdogan aspiring to a Hitler-like presidency because look it worked for hitler there's no memory uh no understanding no comprehension of of what these modes of operation really entail and what they pretend uh you know there's a, a short-sightedness that um that the russians and the chinese uh to give two examples uh have left behind uh everything that they're doing and saying um, is with the aim of of building, of creating things, of uh, of not the short term gain, but the really long term gain. Which is why when they when they're in a position to react to something, uh, even justifiably, um, like you know the U.S. for instance, uh, in the South China Seas, you know the, the Chinese are the first to de-escalate the situation, not without giving warnings. Uh, but certainly, there you know, and there may come a point where they get pushed just too far, and we may see something. Uh, but they're certainly going out of their way in in the things that they're doing and in the things that they're saying diplomatically to suggest they do not want conflict. Uh, they don't want things getting any worse than they already are. They continue to extend a hand uh, or an offering to work with the West, um, you know, and, and unfortunately it will come to a point where the U S and all of its belligerence and short-sightedness and, and, uh, and aggressiveness is, is going to feel the wrath of, of these two nations and perhaps some other nations that have finally bucked up and gotten the, 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 uh, the spine to respond appropriately. 
You guys, I think we might have a caller. Might have a caller. So, yeah. caller, are you? If if you got a question, uh, pipe up. Give us your name, where you're from. Yeah. Yeah, this is Stephen in uh, Tampa. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Stephen. Yo, ha- happy New Year. Um, happy, happy New, New Year, Year to you. Yeah. yeah thank you. Um, you know, when, when I'm looking at this larger uh, dynamic that's unfolding right now, you know, you're talking about Russia and United States, you know, Syria. Um, as a United States citizen, and I'm 52 years old, and I'm watching the whole, like, scenario unfold in front of me, you know, Bernie Sanders, Trump, you know, Syria. Um, here's the way I look at the situation that we're in right now, which is very confusing and, and kind of nebulous. But I think the bottom line is um, when you look at Obama and you look at our, our political system, um, I don't see that it could be any different because we've become, um, as the United States, the hegemon, we've become um, so corrupted in the financial capital in the dynamics of financial capital, the, the hedging, um, this very confused economic situation um, where we have the power to print money, the quantitative easing, it's not backed by anything. So just the fact that we as a nation, as an empire, can just print money without any tangible uh, real development of wealth behind it. And um, so we don't create jobs here. Everything just everything just gets a little bit worse and worse and worse. Everything gets worse. There's no, there's no tangible uh, programs of reforming any component from the environment to uh, police brutality, to um, creating jobs. I mean, everything is failing, and behind it is this financial capital, the banking institutions that control both of the parties. And then you get these figures like Trump, you get Hillary Clinton, and you look at the Republican candidates, and there's just no narrative, there's no presentation of ideas that 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 is solid that that seems like it's a path forward and then we have like Bernie Sanders what's really remarkable about this guy is he's just so ineffectual at um at attacking Hillary Clinton and developing a thesis that people could really get behind and it's just it's totally pathetic and so when i look at this on Obama it, it's as though um, there's no narrative that's being developed that people can like wrap their minds around and support. So um, you like, and then you look at Putin, um, you know, with his history, you know, the history of Russia. Um, you can totally understand that there's a momentum behind their narrative, where, like, for example, in Syria. They're protecting the notion of the viability of and the sovereignty of nation states, and um, the United States has gotten so far, you know, has lost the narrative. When they start supporting ISIL, and then they're pretending that they're fighting it, but they're really not. They're using ISIL to destroy the Assad government. They painted themselves in such a corner with their allies like Saudi Arabia, Qatar in Turkey, 
all of the pack of lies that have been moving all of this forward um, is totally discredited now. And um, Russia moved right into that breach, and Russia is doing the right thing by protecting the viability of the nation state with respect to Syria. And everything is, and this is my opinion, everything has become exposed now, the corruption of the United States narrative and their alliance with Saudi, I mean, the most barbaric forces that are supporting ISIL, and then they're, they're pretending that they want to fight the Islamic State. I mean, it's right now, everything's just broken down to where, like, only the most deluded apologists for, like, propaganda in the state just give any credence to it, which is the mainstream media. But, you know, the, the what, what I'm witnessing is, like, among conservative types here in the United States, everybody's understanding, not everybody, but a huge number of people are understanding that the United States is really supporting the Islamic State, and they don't come out and proclaim it. They don't write editor, you know, letters to the editor, but I, I'm, I'm really shocked by the amount of people that are really understanding this, the canard that's been presented. And... Um, for example, um, Russia um, does have the has gained narrative dominance. So what they want to do in the world with China and their allies is sane. And um, so, for for example, just to back up a little bit, I believe that the United States has been so brazen in trying to provoke Russia and China into some kind of war. Where, where these two countries will make missteps and get involved in the quagmires. But what's interesting is that they're not falling for it in the least bit. They don't right. want war. They're just going to – what my view is, is that China and Russia totally understand that our economic system is going to totally collapse because it cannot not collapse. So the game plan is it's a time thing. You just let things play out. The United States economy will collapse, and you just let them. Everything that the United States does and says, it, it seems to be that they dig themselves deeper into a discredited hole. So they don't even have to really do anything except for protect their interests, be vociferous in counting, countering U.S. propaganda, and support Syria. And just let that be a red line that you're not going to let, you know, the imperialist United States and its and its lackeys destroy the Syrian state. So everything that Erdogan does, Saudi Arabian government does, everything that they're doing right now is totally like undermining themselves. And there's a, so what I'm saying is that there's a larger dynamic that's in play that um, they don't. They don't have to like totally like be aggressive and make a miss move because everything that's that's built up these financial institutions and all their house of cards is on the really the precipice of total collapse and um you know so that that's kind of the way I see it right now, and it's a very we are in a very confused situation as far as our narrative goes in the United States because it's undeniable that we're doing nothing to come together to like develop movements that we can actually solve problems 
and um, the corruption in share. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Stephen, the comment there about narrative dominance, and that just reminded me about uh, just a recent poll in China that uh, a huge percentage of the Chinese are well aware are aware that the U.S. is attempting to contain them and is using a number of different uh, strategies to do so. And I'm sure that in Russia, this is just as big a result. And the narrative dominance then gives uh, an added level of protection to them in terms of color revolutions and just political unity uh, on their drive to accomplish certain things. Um, but I'm not sure if in the West that narrative uh, dominance prevails, though I think, like how you said, you hinted that uh, there are people who are waking up to that. I know in my personal experience there's a lot more people now who uh, will, you know, you see that on their Facebook posts, you see on their Facebook walls, you know, similar sort of uh, ways of thinking. Um, but I think the Western media has got it clamped down here in terms of, you know, letting that narrative prevail, and people are so confused already by all of the lies. You know, Barry goes to UN and says, we're not trying to oust Assad. We want him to, you know, we we're not trying to oust him. We just want to cease fire. We want to protect the, the people. And then, you know, the next day he comes out and says, Assad's an evil dictator. We have to get him out. You know, it's just that, that back and forth has got the Western audience so confused, like you said, that the the narrative dominance is, um, I don't think that their narrative is going to penetrate through. It's just so fractured over here. Yeah, and it's going to, and it's going to continue to deteriorate and collapse. So um, by the time the economic shell game is at its end, um, China and Russia and the BRICS, um, they're already developing an alternative platform where people can invest their wealth into their currencies, which will be backed somewhat, it will be vehicles where it's backed by gold. So um, this is going to be an incredible um, amount of pain that we're going to experience in the United States with the economic collapse because in this kind of dynamic, there's absolutely uh, no positive momentum for developing good jobs. Everything just gets worse and worse and worse. We're not doing anything to tangibly, like, you know, deal with e the e ecological crises. There's no discussions on it. So it's just this um, – it's just everything is totally hazy and everything just gets worse. There's there's no real counter movements on the part of the left to like develop organization of people that that we can you know unify and do anything different. So I just see the whole scenario is leading to a uh, you know an incredible collapse that's um, totally unavoidable. And then after the collapse, you know. You know, there's going to be a lot of tumult, but then then we will have the opportunity to come together because we actually have to. And um, but oh, until and then, on top of, on top of that, Stephen, too, I think uh, you know once there is uh, essentially the U.S. will lose its world influence, and you have countries uh, that are pro. West ideology that really shouldn't be, you know, like uh, the Philippines, for example, 
you know, they, they, there's there's no reason for them to be so antagonistic towards uh, towards China, and you know, same with uh, many other countries in uh, South Asia, and you know, uh, all, all across, like in the Middle East, you know, these these countries that have been pit, pitted against one another is primarily due to Western influence. So once uh, the U.S. goes down, you know, all that energy that they've been spending fighting you know, can actually go towards uh, cooperating with each other. And their intimidation, the fact that, you know, if you're uh, you're in one of these countries, you're a politician and people know you have the backing of Washington, you know, that's a, that's a large specter hanging over you that people don't necessarily want to mess with. But once that specter is gone and it's just seen as the little, you know, man behind the curtain who's, who's uh, fallen and can't get up, then uh, people aren't going to be as intimidated by you. Element. Something would happen over. It may take a year or knows, You know, who, who knows how to handle it? There will be um, you know, a lot of payments from the Western is in grade, uh, you know.
you know, I, I get tired of reading analysis about stuff, even if it's cogent, because it's just kind of reiterating everything that you kind of already know. But, um, you know, what, what's the saddest part for me, and I'm going to hang up after this, is that, you know, we really have the capacity through the Internet to, like, develop organization, you know, that, that does alternative and really interesting things and, and important things as far as, like, coming together and living better. But um, we don't even, you know, despite the, the tools of the Internet, you know, we don't even come together, like, in mutual aid and just do something more brilliant and better. It's like we're, we're passively observing and commenting on the, the things in the realm of, like, ideas and memes. But, like, really what what we we need to do is come together, work together, and live better. And that means work. It means exerting energy. And But, but we're not doing that. And um, that's kind of like the saddest recognition, you know, that I've come to is that, you know, I would love to find a community of people that are actually doing things, you know, in the real world, not just talking about ideas, but farming and construction or whatever that we could just do better. And we have the means to do that through the Internet, but it's just absolutely not happening. And um, so that's just that's just my la- my my overwhelming uh, dissatisfaction is with that last uh, recognition. And um, anyway, I'm going to look forward to listening to the rest of y'all's program, and y'all take care. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, Stephen. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for calling, Stephen. So, uh if you chatters could just let us know if we're sounding okay at this point. I know we were pretty choppy there for a little bit, um, even though Stephen was well heard and Harrison too. Um, can you hear us now? More better. Sounding good. Enough. More better. Yeah. It's more good. better. <laughs> yes. All right. All right. Thanks. Uh, one thing that uh, Stephen touched on that. Uh, um, it's not it, so good. Uh, we just know that we know that Terrorism, right? And it's 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 really wild. Um, yeah, with with this this support that you know the U.S. government has has had, not just with ISIS, but with you know many different types of terror organizations uh, in Syria and all across the the Middle East, uh, you would think that you know people could. Uh, remember, you know, why they are so fearful because of this, you know, th- this terrorist threat. And, you know, it, it just, it, I can't wrap my mind around how, you know, people explain this uh, this to themselves. I think, you, you know, denial goes really, really deep in that case. I mean, I think it's easy to, to have that information go in one ear and then not really, really get, uh, make a landing I mean, I mean, or for people to just deny the implications of it, you know. I mean, they might hear that, you know, the America is, you know, funding terrorists in Syria, 
Um, but then, you know, the the dots are never connected. But, you oh, know, they, then they have a San Bernardino shooting, and they're like, oh, the terrorists are out to get us again. Then there's just no connection there. It's just, uh, I think, especially when it comes to authoritarian people, that's the case. Yeah, and I also think that somehow, some way, Obama is acting in our best interest. We're just not privy to his view. Or they're... Or they're seeing it, okay, so Obama is one who's doing it. You know, it's like everything was all good until Barack Hussein Obama got in there, and now we're arming terrorists. You know, I suspect that there's probably a, a good amount yeah. of people out there who believe that. Yeah, I'm sure there is. Um, well, the, the reason I kind of wanted to bring this up was because, um, you know, uh, so last Sunday you know, there was some, some reports in the media about uh, this uh, dead terrorist who was killed, uh, Alush. Um, so he, you know, this this guy, he has a uh, he leads this terrorist organization that you know has very similar ideology to uh, Al Qaeda and you know other terrorist groups, and you know they they act in accordance with terrorist values, and you know they they um, <clears throat> kill innocent people and you know behave. In you know crazy ways on on the battlefield and um, but okay so so this guy this guy was killed in, in Syria and but you have you know all these uh, these Western sources who are uh, you know talking about you know how how great of a loss this guy was um, now apparently he was also involved in uh, the United States. Uh, work to you know, uh, try to create this like political solution in 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 Syria, and you know the U.S. has really been you know holding this this process back you know for for months and months and months. Uh, Russia has said you know all right let's 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 do this let's let's try to get you know a political solution going mm-hmm. in Syria. But we need to define who the terrorists are mm-hmm. and who the you know the legitimate uh, opposition forces in Syria who they are. Um, well, let me jump in there, Shane, because this, this has been a point that's infuriated me. Uh, we, I mean, can we name a single uh, leader among the so-called uh, Syrian opposition that has any ounce of credibility? or has any kind of legitimate platform or grief. Uh, and this is on top of all of the lies, of course, that have been propagated against Assad. Um, you can't name one. No, you can't. And, and, the, and the, the primary, the, one of the biggest voices for the Syrian opposition, uh, the president of, you know, I, I think it's called the Syrian Opposition Party or something, he's Turkish. <laughs> he lives in <laughs> Turkey. Like, give me, this is insane. It's absurd. It is. Yeah. So, so the U.S. on on some kind of principle, based on lies, uh, and 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 naked naked aggression, is saying, well, you know, we have to give the Syrian opposition a chance here. But who are they? What what are they to even who who are we listening to that has some kind of vision for for this nation that's actually served in the spheres of politics and public service? that has anything credible uh, and legitimate and constructive to add to the conversation. They don't exist. No. You know, who has survived the, the countless coup attempts 
and who has managed to pull the country through a terrorist uprising and a massive civil war and has yeah. pulled through and is now winning? Who has that kind of experience? And and, and who has gotten 88% of the, of the presidential vote? Thank you. Yeah. Assad. I mean, oh, I mean, you know, this is last. This is just last June when you know the country's been in tatters for years at this point, and you know, still the the Syrian people, you know, see what he's trying to do, and what he has been doing, uh, you know, which which I, you know, he's been doing everything he can, you know, to provide for the Syrian people, um, and you know, it, it's just it's just ridiculous that when you know you have this this terrorist leader uh who you know even in you know western uh newspapers like uh new york times and, and others saying oh this powerful syrian leader you know uh was was killed and you know it that destroys the the prospect of a political uh solution being being reached in in syria give me a break i mean well you know what as long as we're uh giving expression to our uh disgust and dissatisfaction with the situation uh, you know, before the show, William and me were talking a little bit, and um, you know, William is a—he's uh, a analytical, logical fellow, uh, as we know and love very well here. And um, it's one of the first times I think I experienced any kind of um, uh, emotional uh, reaction. That I don't know, William. Do you want to reproduce some of that expression here? Because I think. I think it's important, and uh, and and I enjoyed hearing you give give uh, voice to it. I don't know. I had some chocolate earlier, so I think that kind of helped me <laughs> okay. a little bit there. So you're fine now. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it just you know when I was talking about that piece with Burundi, it it just it's just disgusting sometimes to to see some of the wets is. Uh, machinations going on in the in the world, and it, it it just really makes you just want to puke. You, it's like, man, there's just nothing good at all that you can say that the USA, NATO, the West is doing for any of the countries around the world. You know, unlike what you see Russia and China really trying to be creative mm-hmm. and provide win-win situations for the people. Um, what here here's something that really can can kind of highlight that now russia the you know president putin gave his little uh new year's eve speech about five minutes before midnight and it was a very touching uh quick little five minute uh speech he gave and it was all about families people um he's talking about how you know traditionally we celebrate with our families and with our nearest and dearest ones of course not all manage to see the new year in with their families. Uh, people have to work at hospitals, production facilities, perform their services in combat duty, defend our borders, and be on regular duty, ensuring our security on land and sea and the skies. We are grateful to all those who are always at their posts day and night over weekends and holidays. Today, I would like to extend special greetings to those of our service members who are fighting international terrorism, defending Russia's national interests, on distant frontiers, showing their willpower, determination, and staunchness. Although these are qualities we need all the time, whatever we are doing, the success of the entire nation depends on each one of us. 
We are united same goals by our common desire to benefit our motherland and by our sense of responsibility for its future. And so, and he goes on to say, uh, let our children grow smart and active with love and responsiveness, kind heartedness and compassion support us in our everyday chores. That's very heartfelt mm-hmm. and right directly to the people with morality, consciousness. Now, Here's Obama for you. He he doesn't have any kind of a speech. He shows up on a show, um, driving, tooling around in a '93 uh, '63 Corvette with Jerry Seinfeld. The comedian car is getting coffee, and uh, this made some headlines apparently. Um, and one of the most notable things in that conversation that he had with Seinfeld. Seinfeld asked him, how many world leaders do you think are just completely out of their mind? And Obama responded pretty bluntly, a pretty sizable percentage. Part of what happens is these guys, I think, the longer they stay in office, the more likely that is to happen. Seinfeld said, oh, they lose it? He goes, yeah, at a certain point, your feet hurt, and you're having trouble peeing, and you have absolute power. I mean... What does that even mean? I know. It's just... That just makes makes me so angry and so sick and it's like the the contrast between these two gentlemen is just so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Putin uh, talks about family and compassion and supporting people out there defending their democracy and he talks about peeing and coffee and power. Mad power. Mad power. As if he's not one of them. I think he is hinting that he is one of them at the end there. Yeah, that got really personal, didn't it? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of creepy. Very creepy. And, yeah, pretty good representative of uh, yeah, the situation between and the contrast. Yeah, he considers, uh, also he considers uh, um, cursing as, as a valuable tool. Bad stuff or stupid stuff is happening constantly, right? Every day. So you just have to be able to just make fun of it. Wow, that was even dumber and more annoying than usual. That's when cursing is really valuable. Thanks, Obama. Well, our beacon of hope. Uh, moving along a little bit, Harrison, I know that um, there, there's been some uh, interesting um, censorship going on in Israel recently that you've made. Yeah, yeah. And, there's uh, a story. I'll get into it. Um, Okay, so there's this novel that's uh, written by an Israeli woman um, named Dorit Rabinian. The book is called Border Life. That's how it's translated. And this was part of um, school curriculum, or at least it was uh, planned to be. This book won Israel's uh, Bernstein Literary Prize in 2015. So the novel is about uh, an Israeli translator and a Palestinian painter. And they fall in love and uh, in New York, but then when they return back to their respective homes in in, uh, Israel and Palestine, Tel Aviv and Ramallah, respectively, um, things take a turn, and I guess, you know, it's a novel about these two people and the lives they live and and their romance in, um, with, of course, the whole situation in Israel and Palestine as the background. But... Israel's education ministry um, has decided to ban high schools from teaching this book to students um, because it could encourage intermarriage. So this book was deemed a threat by senior education ministry officials. So this is what um, 
Dalia Fenig, who is the acting pedagogic secretariat, said to Ynet News, she said, intimate relations, and certainly the available option of institutionalizing them by marriage and starting a family, even if that does not happen in the story, between Jews and non-Jews, are seen by large portions of society as a threat on the separate identities of Arabs and Jews. Oh, my goodness. Um, The book also apparently depicts IDF soldiers as, quote, sadistic war criminals, and this is not a national priority to teach students this. So um, this one guy, Bennett, uh, I'm not sure who this guy is, um... Oh, yeah, this is the education minister, Naftali Bennett. Um, So he told Haaretz that this has nothing to do with censorship. It's simply about um, not wanting to to force Israeli children to read a book in which soldiers are equated with Hamas terrorists and which describes an affair between a Palestinian Palestinian security detainee and and an Israeli woman. Um, So... So Okay, so this book was banned because it has a romance between an Israeli and a Palestinian, and because it shows the IDF in a negative light. Now, the author responded to these allegations, to what Bennett said, he said and she said, uh, Mr. Bennett did not read Border Life. His mendacious rhetoric, in which he cherry-picked quotes, taking them out of context, is unbefitting an education minister in Israel, and is infinitely more severe than the initial disqualification. So... Um, I just wanted to look at this for a minute or two. Um, oh, first, one other quote. So this is, um, so according, this is from Rachelle Edelman. She's chairwoman of the Book Publishers Association of Israel. And so she describes the book Border Life as a topical book that depicts the problematic nature of our life in this country, the problematic nature of relations between Jews and Arabs. Yet at the same time, it shows the Arab as someone it's possible to love. Okay, so we've got an idea of what this book is about. It's a book that shows violence um, perpetrated by the IDF. I know I haven't read it, so I don't know exactly how it um, how it portrays it, but at least the um, education ministry says that it portrays IDF as sadistic war criminals, which isn't very far from the truth. In fact, it's a perfectly accurate description, and it presents an Arab as someone that is possible for a Jew to love. And that's why the book has been banned. Now, just picture for a minute, let's say that there's a novel written in the United States that it's about a love interest between um, you know, a poor black man, you know, maybe from Compton or someone who maybe has been involved with gangs, doesn't matter, or just you know, a black man who's a, a businessman. And a white person, um, maybe, um, you know, just some white woman or something like that. And that this novel describes police brutality. Now imagine the American education authorities banning this book from schools because it might promote intermarriage between blacks and whites. Oh, my God. You know, the scandal, right? And um, so it could promote intermarriage, and oh my god, intimate relations, even if they don't even lead to marriage, they're seen by large portions of society as a threat on the separate identities of whites and blacks. And how dare this novel uh, portray United United States police force officers as sadistic criminals who who murder, um, you know, 
innocent civilians. I mean, how horrible is that? Now, so imagine this happens in the States, and this novel is banned because it might promote intermarriage between races. I mean, that would obviously be seen as a sign of just overt total racism, and it would be, um, even in the States, which is a horrible country, it would be roundly condemned, and it would be a huge news item um, because of this. I mean, it wouldn't even happen, I don't think. Maybe it would. Maybe I'm being naive here, but uh, I don't think that sort of novel would be banned in the States for that kind of reason. Or anywhere, or pretty much anywhere else, you know, in so-called, um, you know, civilized Western democracies. Um, now, to take it even further, imagine another novel, um, you know, set in Nazi Germany between, uh, <laughs> between some, uh, with a romance between some Nazi uh, or some just regular German and a Jew. And imagine that this novel being published now, and then it being banned today in Germany because it might promote intermarriage between Jews and Germans, and that it portrays the Nazis as brutal war criminals, sadistic war criminals. I mean, it's just totally ludicrous for these people to even say, to, to do this and to say these things. It's, it just reminds me, again, of you know, what we were discussing earlier about Erdogan and how he seems to be just coming off the rails and the mask is, is very quickly just falling off and he's ex, yeah, just exposing himself as being this total idiot where he is... Um, I mean, the first example you can think of this presidential system is Hitler, as for what you know, the system right. that Turkey wants to follow. I mean, what, what kind of an idiot do you have to be to... I mean, you... you You'd think that he would even just catch himself, even if he is the secret Hitler admirer. He'd think, okay, well, wait a second, I've got to think of a better example because if I say Hitler, you know, that's going to be pretty obvious that people think that I like Hitler, and that's the only example that I can think of. Well, yeah, duh. It's, I mean, it's just utterly ridiculous, and uh, I just I can't even imagine. But um, so, so here's here's the Israelis um, banning a book because it. It's a romance between a Jew and an Arab, and it, and it portrays the IDF realistically. So basically what, the, what the, the Israelis are doing here, they're banning this book because it portrays Arabs as human beings who are potential love interests, i.e. potential figures that you can engage in a real human relationship with. And of course, that is verboten. I mean, that's, you, you can't do that. You can't portray Palestinians as humans and that you can have a normal human relationship with, that's just, it's absurd. And, um, you know... Well, you know, Harrison, gotta... what, what I feel, what, what's so interesting about this is that, you know, there isn't even this pretense, you know, there's all the, like, racism in, in Israel is ubiquitous. It's just part of, it's, it's as, it's as uh, you know, every day as, uh, as drinking water or eating a falafel. Um, but it's like, you know, you hear these people like Bennett and these others uh, you know, it's like, hey, don't mess with our programming here. You know, uh -huh. uh, you know how how dare you try and present this this other kind of uh, perspective that might actually uh, get in the way of our destroying uh, the Palestinian people and our hatred for them. Uh -huh. It really goes to show just how deep uh, rooted that that racism is. Is that it? I mean, it doesn't sound like it's really challenged. Uh, by the media, it sounds like it's just a you know someone's like okay, well this is what we're gonna do, and everyone's like oh yeah yeah that's another another thing you know uh, another thing to make sure that the the evil people don't get close to us and our children aren't corrupted by by them. I mean it's just it's so alien 
I mean, even though, you know, racism happens everywhere, but it's just at the same time it's so strikingly arrogantly racist. And yeah, and obviously. Just, and obviously, yes. I mean, because yeah. it is so obvious, which was what makes it so arrogant. And mm-hmm. I mean, I remember just this past week the uh, Israel was called out for spraying pesticides and crop-killing chemicals on Gazan farms, you know, just yeah. to make, you know, just to kill their crops. And then the army came out and said, "Yeah, we did that." I mean, that's that's it. That's what you get. They are so it's such an arrogant um, mentality there, and it's unbelievable that the. I mean, it's you know, after all these years, you can you can see you know a, a picture of Gaza in ruins, and it's like that's just that's Gaza, that's Palestine, and Israel's not going to do it. There's no changing them, and they're armed to the teeth with nukes. So what's the world to do? Yeah. Yeah. And I think this just says uh it comes back just to the theme of today's show that the these Israeli officials can be so just like Erdogan so totally oblivious to the fact that they are exposing themselves and they have no idea of how how they are presenting themselves, how other people will see them. Um it's uh it's just mind-boggling. If you think about Racism. I mean, I watched a video recently. Um, it was going around on Facebook, just an, in, an interview or a series of interviews. I think it was. It looked like it was probably filmed in the 70s, maybe the 60s, actually. Um, just interviewing random white people about their their thoughts on blacks in America, and just the totally stupid and racist things that they say. Um, and you know, I read some comments in, in response to the video on how. Um, these same attitudes are alive today, but they're but they're more uh, beneath the surface. Now you can see this in, in terms of um, I can't remember the word for it. It's like sub subliminal or subconscious racism or something like that. It's basically when people will will profess to to not be racist, but then they've got um, these kind of unconscious um, tendencies that tend to be racist. Now consciously they they won't think of themselves as racist, and they they probably would even um, try to change their attitudes and behaviors that have any kind of racism, but it's still there below the surface. Um, they just, you know, they they know that it's wrong to think about about you know other races that way, so they don't they don't want to do it. But there are still the tendencies there. So we've got this, and I think that's the way it works in a lot of uh, with a lot of people is that people. Um, a lot of people nowadays know that it's stupid to be racist. They know that it's not socially acceptable, but they, it's still kind of there beneath the surface a little bit. Um, but then you've got the people that are just so totally brain dead and clueless that they're overtly, arrogantly, obviously racist. And so, again, just like Erdogan, it's like, how can you even think that it would be a good idea to to come up with Hitler as your first example of a good you know, presidential system, how can the Israelis think that they can get away with this? I mean, well, it's because they can, but you know, you'd think that they'd have better PR people. You'd think that they'd have a better idea of trying to present themselves as being this actual democracy instead of an apartheid state. But they're just obviously an apartheid state, and they make no bones about it. And it's like, even if they try... Like, I, I can't even understand it because, on the one hand, they deny that they're an apartheid state, but on the other, they just make these public statements where they kind of just wholeheartedly say, "Well, here it is." I, I can't understand it. Well, you know, it's 
as you're describing that, I was just thinking uh, of Russia at that point. You know, they, they do have this big problem with terrorism. Um, and yet, none of the, and, I mean, and of course you do have wing list of groups in Russia, but like, what are um, he he builds this you know incredible mob. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this is a this is a culture and a people that embraces uh, uh, and is uh, it part of anything? So um, just another mention to these you know these countries that are. This way, okay, Elon, you're yeah. breaking up. So I just want to breaking I'm just up. Gonna, Go yeah, I'm just going to talk a bit. I'm going to I'm going to say what I think you're saying, and then uh, we'll mm-hmm. just you know let me talk for a bit, and then hopefully in a in a few seconds the sound will be better again, and you can chime in. Um, so uh, we didn't hear a lot of what you were saying, but from what I picked up, you mentioned Russia and. And Putin and Mosque. So I think what you're talking about is that uh, in in Russia, of course, um, there is there is still racism in Russia. But what we have in Putin, like we were talking about earlier, is that Putin has kind of really tried to um, to be this um, this figure that embodies certain ideals and values. And one of those is is Russia's multiculturalism. And so Putin has been very clear about. Russia being a multicultural and multi uh, multi religious multi religion um, country federation of um, of all these different peoples and religions in in the various regions because Russia is just huge and one of the examples last year was opening um, like I think it's it was Europe's at least or one of the I think it was Europe's biggest mosque one of the biggest mosques in the world in Moscow and how. Um, Despite, you know, um, in spite and against any kind of racist tendencies in the country, there's this deliberate effort to promote um, basically being a decent human being and not being a racist jerk in uh, in Russia. Um, comment on that, Ilan? Well, uh, if you don't hear me, um, that's pretty much what I was trying to get at. Uh, um, on that note, since we're, we're coming towards the end of the video, so um, Meg's got some um, facts on birth changes in the last couple since we've done the last show, just to have uh, escalated even more. Uh, did you want to? Yeah. And we'll just. Paris, I should like some uh, some effects. Did do we all hear Megan okay? Breaker, breaker, What's that? Uh, yeah, I wasn't breaking up. Okay, now you guys are breaking up, but I heard that last bit. Okay, well, um, I'll start with flooding. Um, there's been flooding all over the world this past week or two. Um, there's massive flooding in the U.S. and Illinois, Missouri. Um, Missouri had levee failures, several levee, levee failures. Um, Illinois got over 10 inches of rain in three days. Um, 
talking about flooding, um, massive flooding in the Northern Territory of Australia. Um, there's a storm in the Philippines from Typhoon Malor and Nona. Um, some of the towns in the Philippines are still underwater from that flood. Um, massive flooding in Paraguay, Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, um, Cumbria, um, the UK had their third uh, storm in a month, caused massive flooding there. And in Paraguay, there was a six-kilometer crack that opened up in the earth as a result of their rain and overflowing creeks. Um, tornadoes, Indiana, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas. Um, there was a huge wildfire in Victoria, Australia. <clears throat> there was a wildfire that hit in California. Um, and there was an article up that showed that this year was the most expensive on record in fighting wildfires. It was $1.71 billion they spent this year just fighting wildfires. Um, we had a blizzard that killed over 30,000 cattle in New Mexico and Texas, and they expect that number to rise. So you guys expect your food costs to go up if this continues. This is only December. Um, we had a winter storm that dropped 4.3 billion gallons of snow, ice, water into Lake Tahoe in 24 hours. Um, let's see. Let's, we can go into the cold stuff. Uh, um, these news items are really for either record-breaking snow, record-breaking cold, or blizzards. Um, we had a summer snow in Peru for three inches of snow. Um, Montreal broke a 61-year snowfall record. Uh, Texas got snow. New Mexico got snow. There was 33 million under state of emergency. They had 16 to 20 inches of snow in New Mexico with snow drifts up to 8 to 10 feet. Um, northern Mexico. Jeez Louise. Yeah. And it's unbelievable when you look at the pictures. Um, Northern Mexico, uh, it was the largest storm in half a century. They got 12 inches of snow, and it was negative 18 See there. Um, El Paso got 7 inches. You never get snow in El Paso. Um, there's a little tiny town in Argentina called El Calafate, uh, and the elders of their community said they'd never seen that much snow um, in Argentina. And, of course, Kamchatka, Russia, heavy snow. Las Vegas, a desert of all places, got snow for Christmas. Um, there's a, a mountain pass in the Cascades in Washington State. It's called Snoqualmie. And they received a record of 193.3 inches of snow. Um, and they broke a record set in And the heaviest they had the week before Christmas, and it dropped 112 inches of it. And it's just snow, cold weather and more snow and ice <laughs> and floods and water and, and floods water absolutely yeah. I can only imagine this past week has just been rain and it's been abnormally warm now imagine if it was you know the the, the temperature 
we would be no, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And some did. There were more, more going on in little towns all over the world, as far as that goes. But um, I've got, let's see, this volcanic activity. Um, it's basically the Ring of Fire, um, and it's talking about the like, Kamchatka, Russia Peninsula, and Japan. There's four active us in the Kamchatka chain right now, and there's four active volcanoes in Japan. Um, we've got six in the Pacific Ocean. We've got six active volcanoes in South America, um, six in the Caribbean and Central America, seven active volcanoes in Asia, and um, Africa and Indian history. So, and these are active that are constantly doing something. There's no rest or a period of unrest in the period of activity. They're constantly so there's a lot going on Earth-wise. It sounds like uh, weather uh, changes or just cultural tectonic shifts. Uh, it's really hit fan right now. For most people, will have a severe winter wear in January and right. February. So, I mean, it's going to be more, I think. And cattle, 30,000 head of cattle produces quite a bit of food for people. So, Well, um just wanted to say uh, we, we covered uh, the economy just a little bit today, um, but uh, there have been lots of articles recently posted to SOT uh, suggesting um, just how quickly uh, things seem to be uh, degrading uh, in the U.S. in particular, but also in other places. And, uh, you know, just a, uh, a strong reminder to everyone uh, and it, and uh, and geological changes, you know, there there can be uh, destabilization in the form of a crashing economy or or other things happening. Um, uh, it's always just a good idea to be as prepared as possible uh, for an extended period of time, um, and to be as proactive as possible about uh, about how you would live from day to day. Uh, given the types of, of things that seem to be in the offing. Um, we've talked about it before on the show. Uh, just something to think about and consider. And just on a practical uh, level right there, uh, in just uh, last week, uh, we had uh, lost a water pump because of some freak weather incident. You know, things really uh, hit the fan where we were living. We lost water for five days. And if, you know, you just prepare for those kinds of things, uh, you don't see it coming. You don't know when it's going to hit. But, you know, it wasn't that bad. Now, if, you know, think things were worse, you know, it could have been a very, very stressful and unpleasant experience. It was stressful and unpleasant, but it was mitigated by the fact that we were prepared. Yeah, I think we're, you know, we're so used to um, having things work uh, and, and our own comfort that, uh, you know, when when bad things happen, uh, it it uh, it really kind of wakes us up a little bit to ha- just how tenuous uh, the, you know our lives um, are when, when we're relying on these very simple things. Um, did anyone want to add anything else to the theme of today's show or on any other thought? Addison, 
Did you have any closing remarks you wanted to bring up today? No, I think we'll just wait until next week and <laughs> carry on from there. <laughs> Very good. Sounds great. Well, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Stephen, our caller, who, by the way, wins the uh, 2015 Best Guest Caller for uh, the Truth Perspective Award. Mm-hmm. Uh, we thank you for your thoughts and for putting together your ideas uh, so eloquently as usual. Um, thank you, Chatters, for letting us know when you can't hear us, but also uh, adding all of your pithy remarks and observations about what said he um, you know, we we uh, we wish everyone a good, safe, happy New Year, and we hope that uh, we can do this as long as possible and uh, continue to communicate what we're seeing. And uh, hope to tune to the Behind the Headlines show at 2 p.m. Uh, uh, the Wellness Show at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, and until then. Be safe, be strong, be wise. We hope to uh, to be back next week with another show. Bye, everybody. Thanks, thank you. Happy New Year. Take care.